if we admitted it, would know that we do this too much, but to some degree, we all dream of the grass being greener on the other side. Another job, another house. Sometimes our families drive us so crazy that maybe we imagine another family. Uh, and I'm not talking about like taking steps to improve your life, right, or your situation, but generally speaking, the promise of the grass being greener is, is usually just empty. It's a facade. In the end, you usually, usually end up with the same problems. Change homes, your home has the same problems. Change jobs, you usually have the same problems. Change families, same problems. Don't change families. You can change jobs, change homes, don't change families. In some cases, you might end up with more problems. That's what a man named Brian Robison believed uh, in 1964. In, in 1964, this guy named Brian was 19 years old. And he's from Wales. And in 1964, for Brian Robison, the grass looked greener in Australia. He had an itch to just go and do something with his life in a far-off land. And so he basically used all of his resources so that he, in one suitcase could move to Australia, and he knew instantly that he did not want to be there as soon as he got off the plane. So Brian ended up spending months uh, not only trying to cover the cost of his original travel, but also trying to save up for another plane ticket home. But the problem is he couldn't. He made so little money and the costs were so great that it was impossible for him to cover those costs. So with the help of some friends, Brian mailed himself back home to Wales. He, he in his one suitcase, his friends, put him in a three foot by three foot box. And for five days, he's crammed in a three foot box, traveling all the way back to Wales. The greener grass was definitely a facade. The things that we unite around can be a facade too. Whether it's a football team or where we're from uh, or a hobby, the facade can be exposed pretty quickly. And in fact, right now, they are being exposed pretty quickly. Uh, whether you're where you land on COVID and masks or politics or our children, we've seen a lot of what unites us dissolves pretty quickly. There's got to be something great enough to sustain unity even among sharp differences. There's got to be something that unites us even when geography, politics, social status, or culture separate us. Something that doesn't prove to be a facade. Peter, in these first few verses, you weave several themes that is found throughout his letter. And, and to some degree, all of those themes are found in the first two verses. And one of those things that is central in 1 Peter is the unity of believers. As we will see when we read, Peter writes to the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. But even though these believers are separated by place and geography, probably political differences, they're separated by sufferings, and their social standings, they are united together by the gospel of Christ. 
And the reason unity is so important is because it gives us a global vision for the kingdom. A proper understanding of unity snaps us out of our narrow cultural visions to give us a grand scope for our purpose. It's not one of these things that's, yes, let's all get along. It's actually central to understanding the kingdom of God. And if we are not grounded in these truths, the church will be ineffective, nobody will want Christianity, and the name of Christ will be slandered. And so before Peter ever launches into his letter, he packs these first two verses full with central truths of the things that unite us. So let's look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 to 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. The first thing that unites us is our shared confession. Our shared confession. Peter identifies himself here as an apostle of Jesus Christ. And we might be tempted to think, yeah, all the Apostles write this way. They all identify themselves as the apostle, but they do that for a reason. And what this means is that Peter's not writing advice. He's not writing simply to make us feel good. He's writing what one commentator called the binding apostolic word for the church. So in other words, this is the authoritative word of God inspired by the Holy Spirit. And so Peter actually weaves this theme of of confession, of apostolic authority throughout his letter. Right? So Peter writes about, uh, later in chapter 1, the prophets who prophesied about the gospel. What we now know as the Old Testament. Right? So he's, he's talking about the prophets and their word of God, the authoritative word of God. Peter even says that these writings by the prophets are things into which angels long to look. Peter weaves uh, several Old Testament themes through his letter, calling the church a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. All words that were used in the Old Testament to identify Israel, but are now applied to the church. So Peter takes this theme of authority, of written authority, specifically from the Old Testament, and he weaves it all through his letter. So, So it's this, Authority, this foundation that the church stands on. And the Bible at this point in time for the Christians would have been the Old Testament. We're still, they're still gathering the New Testament writings and combining them into what we now have. And Peter's apostolic word and his use of the Old Testament is not just for one particular church or one particular nation, or one particular culture. It's for the universal church. So these things are not only binding for the church, they bind the church together. In the church's early days, um, before we have the advantage of 2,000 years of church history, and we can formulate doctrine, but in the early days, they formulated what is called the Apostles' Creed. 
And the Apostles' Creed is a bedrock summary of what Christians have affirmed throughout history and geography. In fact, the early Christians used the Apostles' Creed kind of as like a litmus test. Uh, They would recite this to one another to confirm and affirm one another's faith. This is how they knew this is a Christian. It goes like this. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth, and believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived from the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary, who suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried, descended into hell, rose again on the third day from the dead, ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, who will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, which Catholic means universal, not the denomination. So I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. The Apostles' Creed. And, and it is this formula that, that I think encapsulates a summary of, of the binding word that binds Christians together. This is what Jude calls the the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And so Christians are united by our shared confession. But we're also united, secondly, by our shared sufferings. Peter writes to uh, those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia and Bithynia. Peter calls them elect exiles. And I'm actually going to talk about elect in a moment, in another point. But for now, let's look at the word exiles. The, the word exiles very pointedly denotes suffering. Right? So to be in exile means you've been banished. And if you are a Christian, you are by definition banished by the world. And so these Christians that Peter was writing to probably weren't literally exiles, right? If you think about Russia, uh, they would exile criminals uh, or enemies of the state to uh, Siberia. That's not what he means by exiles, right? These Christians were living in their own towns and cultures they grew up in. No, these believers and believers in general are exiles because they suffer for a faith that the world finds unacceptable and odd. And as Christians, it's important that we not only believe this, but that we feel this too. Peter will later call the the Christians sojourners. A sojourner is a place who doesn't have a home. Paul writes in Philippians, and this is really profound, that it has been granted to you not only to believe in Christ, but to suffer for Him. So if someone were to ask you, what does it mean to be a Christian? We would simply say, right, it's someone who believes in Jesus. But in reality, a Christian is not only someone who believes in Jesus, but also suffers for Jesus. The suffering is as much a component of Christianity as is the faith. And I saw this week uh, where Joel Osteen made this promise. You're on the verge of a breakthrough. A healing. A promotion. You're going to be able to say, nothing is missing in my life. 
And that's a false gospel because it's not Christianity. You could be on the verge of a breakthrough. You could be on the verge of years of agony and suffering. Christians are those who share a disposition that says we don't belong to this world and we don't feel at home in this world. No nation, no political party, no culture, no organization can truly embody the kingdom that I am now a part of. And I've I've seen Christians these days say they feel politically homeless, and I think that's a good thing. It's good to feel homeless. Peter also uses this word dispersion. That word dispersion also connotes suffering, but it's also a uniquely Jewish word in Scripture. Right? The... The dispersion happened when the Jews were exiled from the land, right, in uh, 600 B.C. And, and even though they returned to Jerusalem, they're still scattered throughout the world, and so it's called the dispersion. So it's a uniquely Jewish word, but what's interesting is that Peter is not writing to Jews. He's writing to Gentiles. And we'll cover that as we go through the letter. So Peter actually takes words and phrases that used to designate Israel and now applies them to the church. And that leads to our third point. We are united by our shared election. So Peter, right, calls us elect exiles. And then he goes on to say in verse 2, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. So God is no longer concerned with an earthly kingdom, Israel. God is now concerned but with a heavenly kingdom. Before Jesus came, the kingdom of God was seen. Right, You could see it in the presence of, of the nation of Israel, but now that Jesus has come, the kingdom of God is unseen. In fact, the clearest expression of the kingdom of God we have is this room right here. The gathered local body of believers. And so, I I just mentioned this, but Peter takes words specifically designated for Israel and says they are now for the church. He calls the church the dispersion. Peter tells the church, uh, but he, as he who called you is holy, you also be holy. Something taken from Leviticus, spoken to Israel originally. He tells these Christians, these Gentile Christians, that they are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Words taken directly out of Deuteronomy and Isaiah. What this means is the church is the new Israel. And it is comprised of both Jew and Gentile. When a Jew gets saved, they become a part of the church. When a Gentile gets saved, they become a part of the church. And this designation happens because of election. You did not choose God. God chose you. And He didn't choose you because you were holy or good or better or more more deserving. He chose you by divine providence and grace. Without God choosing you, you would never be able to choose God on your own. This truth, as long as we are grasped by it, should lead to profound humility. 
And the fact, this, the reason this is important is because there is nobody in that is there by accident. So your fellow Christian is a brother or sister in Christ eternally and deeply loved by the Father. What would otherwise be completely incompatible people are united by the fact that they are in by divine election. So this is why we dare not slander or speak evil against a fellow believer. Because they are deeply loved and cherished by God. We dare not accuse another believer without serious cause. We dare not divide. Your fellow Christians are God's elect. Fourthly, we are united by our shared spirit. Peter says, right, to those who are elect exiles in the sanctification of the spirit. That phrase, in the sanctification of the spirit, actually modifies elect exiles. So they go together. Believers in Christ are united together by the Holy Spirit. In this way, Christians who gather together, who enter into relationship together, it's not a club membership. It's more like a marriage. I, I remember a friend, I was back in high school, I think, I was a teenager probably, but he, you know, he's just kind of asking, like, is the only thing that makes marriage different a certificate? Like, what makes a couple truly married? Is it just the state certifying that they are married? No, we hold that marriage is a deeply spiritual union. Something happens when two people are married that we just can't see. And it's the same with becoming a Christian. Something profound happens that changes us and joins us to other believers in a way that we cannot see. So what this means is, is that you are more deeply connected with one another than a family member who may not be a Christian. You are more deeply united to the Christian you do not know who lives in India than you are to a brother or sister who's not a Christian. And when Peter uses this word sanctification, our minds usually go to like ongoing growth in holiness, right? That's what to be sanctified means. And to work out sanctification means to continue to grow in holiness. And that's true. It's important to know that, that we are not the source of our sanctification. The Spirit is. But here, in this context, Peter is speaking of the Spirit as the source of our salvation. So when did you decide to believe the gospel? I, I heard the gospel for years. In many ways, in many times, but it wasn't... I heard it so many times until at one point, I not only truly believed it, but it became real to me. And the difference wasn't how old I was. The difference wasn't I knew more. I knew the gospel already. It wasn't my place in life. The difference was the Spirit's work. And if you are in Christ, you share the same Spirit. And if you share the same Spirit, then you are transformed. 
The Spirit's transformation should have a very real effect on a believer's life. In 1 Peter, what we're about to see is that this transformation happens for obedience. Peter is very concerned with obedience. And especially in the context of submission. Our culture does not like the word submission. But that's exactly the kind of obedience that the Spirit inspires is a submission to one another. And so this leads to our next point. Reunited by our shared Savior. We'll talk about obedience in this, but, but Peter writes to those who are elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. So obedience plays a central role in 1 Peter. Peter writes uh, later in his, in his letter, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. This obedience leads to a holy and honorable life. And part of that is submission. Be subject or submit for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor supreme or to governors sent by him. Many of the letters in the New Testament were written when Nero was the emperor. Nero was not worthy of being submitted to, but Peter still asks us and commands Christians to submit to him. Peter says, servants, slaves, be subject to your masters. Wives, be subject to your husbands. And even husbands are called to submit to a proper understanding of their wives. Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. And finally, as the church, he writes, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. Paul writes this way in Philippians, consider one another more significant than yourselves. This kind of obedience that I'm describing that kind of comes out all through 1 Peter is so central to conversion that it can be said, uh, it can be called an obedience to the Gospel. Right? Paul says in Romans that we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith. Tom Schreiner writes that conversion is not merely an intellectual acceptance of the Gospel, nor is it faith with the blank slates. Conversion involves obedience and submission to the Gospel. And we don't obey in order to be saved, do we? No, we obey because we are already saved. Obedience is just the other side of the coin of what Peter writes here. The sprinkling of his blood. Church, we are not trying to be obedient to earn God's favor. We obey because we already have God's favor eternally in Christ. The reason Peter can write, may grace and peace be multiplied to you is because we already enjoy a right relationship with God. Our obedience doesn't add to it. And by God's mercy, our disobedience doesn't detract from it. We enjoy a right relationship with God solely on the basis of the obedience of someone else. Our Savior, Jesus Christ. 
because Christ served us and suffered for us, He becomes our example for enduring suffering and serving one another. To be in exile, to serve one another like we are called to, is radically difficult. But it is in Christ that we find the energy to live according to God's purpose. Finally, we are shared by we are united by our shared God. It is true that the Bible does not include the word Trinity. The church would wrestle and hold councils on how best to describe the God we find in Scripture. But don't miss how Peter and Scripture uh, write and talk about God. We are elect exiles by the work of the Father, the work of the Spirit, and the work of the Son. Michael Reeves, the author of Delighting in the Trinity, wrote, For what makes Christianity absolutely distinct is the identity of our God. Which God we worship. That is the article of faith that stands before all others. The bedrock of our faith is nothing less than God Himself. And every aspect of the Gospel, creation, revelation, salvation, is only Christian insofar as the creation, revelation, and salvation of this triune God. So the obedience and the suffering that Peter calls for are not humanly possible. From a human standpoint, they don't make sense. This type of obedience and patient suffering can only happen as we drink deeply of the magnificence of a God who exists eternally as three persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. Never once do they operate apart from each other. There is not a moment in which a thought in one person does not instantly and simultaneously exist in another. They eternally exist in one divine essence, and yet they eternally exist distinctly as three persons. It is this three-person God that created the universe. This three-person God who imagined the light year, the fact that light travels 186,000 miles per minute in 5.88 trillion miles in a year. It is this God that created the light year and created a universe so expansive that the light from one star that we can see in our galaxy takes 430 years to reach Earth. When you look up at the night sky, some stars that you see, the light is so old, could be coming from the time that Christ was on earth. And many more, much, much older than that. It is this triune, three-person God that created math and science and quantum mechanics and photosynthesis. He created snow, where in the USA alone, over one septillion snowflakes fall from the sky. That's one with 24 zeros. Not counting all the snowflakes that fall all over the world. And not one of those snowflakes looks like another. 
And all three persons act in perfect harmony to accomplish salvation. The Father elects, the Spirit quickens, and the Son sheds His blood. This perfect, all-knowing, all-imaginative, all-sovereign, all-powerful, all-infinite God through the Son became a man and died for pitiful sinners who sit in these rows at Liberty Baptist Church in Springfield, Missouri. So Peter not only wants to call us to a radical obedience, but a radical worship. The reason unity is important is because it gives us a global vision, an eternal vision for the kingdom. It snaps us out of our narrow cultural visions to give us a grand scope for our purpose. Church, we are not just a small country church whose purpose it is to to make a name for ourselves or to uh, live a comfortable life or to fashion a nation. Our purpose is to join the global community of believers to build God's kingdom the way He wants to build it. And so, yes, we want a just society. Yes, we want a moral society. But those things are not guaranteed for us because those things can only exist in one kind of kingdom. God's eternal kingdom. And maybe it is that God is using devastation and worldly conflict and immorality to reposition us for a greater purpose. The building of His global unified kingdom. That's why unity is important. And that's why we need to stand on these six things so that we don't become lethargic or sidetracked or, or, or uh, disinterested, but focused on the mission that God has for us. Not the building of liberty's kingdom. As much as I wish, want us to grow, that's not our purpose. Our purpose is to advance God's kingdom in the way that He wants to advance it. And we do that with a global unity, global community of believers based on the things that unite us. Let's pray. Father God, right now we are united with believers across the globe. We're united with believers who gather here in Springfield. United with believers in St. Louis. United with believers in Colorado and in Florida. United with believers in Mexico and Canada. United with believers in Wales and in France. In Afghanistan and India. And all of us, no matter how big or how little, are part of the kingdom, the eternal kingdom that You are advancing. And God, we stand united by these things.
a confession, our sufferings, our election, our spirit, our Savior, our God. God, don't let us be sidetracked by cultural battles or cultural fights, but God, let us keep our eyes on the mission that you have for us. The building of your global unified kingdom by the blood of your Son, Jesus. And it's in His name that we pray. Amen.